that with us. For those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, along with our congregation, turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 18. We're going to read two passages of scripture, one from Luke 18 and one from Luke 19. And before we do that, I just, uh, once a month, Sermon Audio sends us a, an update for uh, the number of uh, downloads from uh, their site uh, from the sermons and the teachings. And we started uh, this particular subscription back in 2011. And last month for the church, this was, was remarkable when I saw it, we had 3,500 downloads in one month. Since 2011, we have had 53,000 downloads. So I know we're a small church and we say that quite often, but we forget that we live in, again, a marvelous time. And so the gospel is being preached not only here in the States, but almost 600 of these downloads last month were international, as far away as Singapore and Australia on the other side of the world. So continue to pray for that ministry. Brother Tim's not here this morning, but he, he does a great job of uh, filtering this as it's being recorded and then uh, uploading uh, to Sermon Audio. And that site, if you go to our website on, uh, on the home page and go all the way to the right, it says Watch, and you click on that, it takes you to Sermon Audio, and we have archived now, as I said, most of the messages back through 2011, which will take us back, interestingly enough, to the Gospel of Luke. We were in the Gospel of Luke at that time. So, let's begin in verse uh, 18, I believe, this morning. Uh, excuse me, verse 9. Uh, let's, yeah, verse 9 of chapter 18, and then we're going to chapter 19. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed this, thus within himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. And the tax collector, I fast twice a week rather, and I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and say, saying, God, be merciful to me as a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Turn over the page to chapter 19. This is a very, um, I guess, uh, uh, very well-known passage of Scripture about Jesus and Zacchaeus. I remember when I was a child, and that's been a long time ago, but when I was a child, often in Sunday school or in children's church, and occasionally the pastor would preach from this particular passage. Then Jesus entered, Luke writes, and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and this is interesting, he 
was rich. Wow. And he sought to see Jesus, who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste, and he came down, and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, obviously, this was the disciples and the crowd, not just the crowd. They all complained, saying, there's going to be a guest with a man as a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, 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 I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. May God bless the reading of his holy word and our hearing. Let's go to his throne of grace in, in prayer. Father, bless, I pray, the word this morning. Teach us where we are, are ignorant. Convict us where we are stubborn. Change our hearts and minds to be like Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, brother, the first slide, if you would. So a few, a few weeks ago, we started to look at a series of uh, Advent messages uh, entitled The Controversial Christ. And so we have examined the world interrupted a few weeks ago. And then the words interrogation, we finished uh, or completed that passage in, uh, on Christmas Eve. This morning we're going to start to look at the words initiative, which is salvation. And these are the passages, of course, that I've read in your hearing. And then when we finish this uh, message, we will move to the worship of the incarnate Christ or what we need to know about worship. Now, the world was interrupted and interrogated by the incarnate babe so that controversies such as the intolerance of tolerance towards authority may be addressed, and that's the world interrupted. Second, the challenges of fidelity to the word of God, the truth within the church, not outside the church, within the church, would be answered by the living words, authority, and truth, which is initiated by the centrality of Christ's cross and salvation and the need for professing believers to learn how to worship, how to live truth, not just believe truth, because the devils, James writes, believes truth. So believing truth without the work of the Spirit of God which changes you doesn't mean that we live the truth. Christ became incarnate as a babe born in a cradle so that our salvation would be crowned by the vicarious death of Calvary's cross. 
And we must always remember that the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, the old King James says, in order that we focus on the cross, on the suffering, which we've been preaching about, obviously, in First um, Peter. Now, Paul Tripp, a few weeks ago, had um, an interesting take on Christmas. He said, Christmas is a mystery wrapped in a mystery. How would a deeply unholy people be reconciled to a perfectly holy God? Would his mercy compromise his justice? Would his justice crush his mercy? Holy and unholy, the great drama of the Christmas story. In God's redeeming wisdom, the mystery of the reconciliation of unholy ones, that's you and I, to the holy one, was solved by the, uh, by the mystery of mysteries. God would reconcile unholy people to himself through the grace of the mystery of the God-man, Jesus. This is impossible, he says, and it is to fully understand, but it is essential to believe. Born to Mary, he continues, the Son of Man, the Son of God, preexistent and self-sufficient, infant and dependent, Creator becomes part of creation. The one who breathed life into Adam breathes in earth's air. The one who created life willingly lays down his life. The judge comes to bear our judgment. The giver of life will lose his life so that unholy people can be reconciled to a holy God. Christmas is a mystery wrapped in a mystery, and so we sing with the angels a song that will last forever. Glory to God in the highest. So the world was interrupted. The world has been and is being interrogated in order that the Spirit of God may shower us with the understanding of the sole initiative of the Trinity salvation. Next slide. So you will notice that the word salvation is used in verse 9. In fact, we'll focus on that momentarily. But if you were to, the word is, is taken from the root word for saved, but it's not, it's used differently. Let's put it that way. So the Greek word is soteria, which from which we get the, the doctrine of soteriology, which is just the doctrine of salvation. The teaching of salvation, that's all the word doctrine means, teaching. The teaching of salvation contained in the Scripture. The word saved means to, uh, obviously, to save, or sozo means to save and to rescue. So, for example, the word salvation, it's God's rescue uh, that delivers believers out of destruction to safety. I've mentioned to you a number of times that we are now in our safe place as believers. And the reason we're in our safe place is because God's salvation brings us to safety. Now, the use of the word soteria in classical Greek described a man's safe return to his own home or his country 
after an absence, a journey. The ancients, and by that I mean during Christ's time, the ancients used mostly to describe soteria as bodily health. For instance, a member of the family would write home and ask the question, write me a letter about your soteria, about how are you doing? And that's often what we do when we check on folks that have been ill or infirmed or, or perhaps are wounded be, be, for some other reason. We generally start by asking the question, how are you doing? How are you feeling today? That's salvation. So my question to you is, how are you feeling today? In your spiritual nature. The word salvation is found in the English New Testament 45 times. Found in the Greek as obviously and translated the word salvation. It's used by the biblical authors to describe. Now here's an interesting thing. Our rescue from God's coming wrath. But not only the rescue from wrath. But our safe return to him. And his home. Our safe return. To him. And to his home. Heaven is God's home. Folk go to heaven. By the rescue. Of God and Jesus Christ. And that's the only way. In Acts 4, as Peter was preaching, he said, And there is salvation, soteria, in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, by which we must be delivered, by which we must be rescued. Paul would use the word several times in his writing, and it's just a couple of them, both from the book of Romans. Romans 1, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to deliver us from wrath and take us home to be with him, the one that delivered us from his wrath. What a paradox. What a mystery of mysteries. It is to everyone who believes. It is not to all. It is to all that believe. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then, Romans 10.10, 10, For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in being delivered from wrath and taken home to be with him who delivered us from that wrath. When you get to heaven, remember something. Those of you that know Jesus as Savior. When you look upon Jesus, you are looking upon the one who delivered you from the wrath of his father. That's the reason 
that the scripture says that the four and twenty el uh, elders and the angels around the throne fall down and worship him who lives forever and ever because the one who took the wrath delivered us from the one who was to give the wrath. For the, with the heart man believes. Not all are going to heaven. I trust that all of you that are here this morning are. But you have the responsibility to ensure that you've been rescued. Next slide. We see here in Luke chapter 9 and 19, rather, in verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Zacchaeus, a rich man. Now in Luke 16, we're told about the rich man and Lazarus. And Jesus said it's hard for the wealthy to enter heaven. But here we have a rich man who is granted salvation. Today's salvation, Soteria, has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. But be very careful that we don't think that because folks are in poverty, they're the only ones that are going to be saved. I met some very poor people that were wicked. And I've met some people that were, I don't know that I've ever met anybody rich, but certainly folks that were well off that were godly. So let's not be like the Pharisees in Luke 18. So it leads us to appreciate our need to be interrupted. That's the reason you're here this morning, by the way, is to be interrupted. And also to be interrogated by Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God so that we may be delivered to be returned to the Trinity's home, the place where God dwells. Now, understand something about God since God is a spirit, and we'll learn this in John 4 then God certainly is omnipresent. He's not limited to heaven. There's no limit with God. He transcends created places. Noodle that for a little bit. Think about that for a while. So as we begin to look at the words initiative, we look at these two passages. We've we're into the new year, 2024. And folks, I don't know if you do it or not. Some folks do, some folks don't. New Year's um, initiatives or New Year's resolutions. Uh, when I was uh, employed outside of uh, Flat Creek here, part of my responsibility was to gen up what's called a strategic plan. Some of you may have, may, may be or may have been involved and strategic plans. And you would go out and, and you would acquire, these are basically annual initiatives that each division of a corporation would put together. 
part of my responsibility was assembling all of these, going through, filtering them, making sure they were in line with the company's ideas which concern the bottom line. By the way, profit is not a bad word. Now, indecent profit is, but profit is not a bad word. And so, they would develop these, we developed these, for, then you, the responsibility of each division, and part of my responsibility was to ensure that each division followed what they said they were going to do. Well, we're involved with it, we had this and that, oh, okay, let's come back to what you said you were going to do. How is this going to contribute to the corporation's bottom line? What are you doing to ensure that you take care of that problem over there and then you follow this initiative. You don't get to say that's not an excuse. Well, I got a problem over here. Yeah, of course you do. Everyone has problems. What are you doing to follow that initiative? Now, the initiative of the Trinity is sovereign. It's not, it will never change. It's unchangeable because God's unchangeable. And the initiative is, Luke 19, 10, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. That has never changed. Go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Genesis 3, 15, which reads, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God's decree to Lucifer. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, the offspring of sin, and her offspring, which was human. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's called the proto-evangel for those that are looking for some theological term. What does it mean? It just means it's the first record of the promise that an evangelist, that Messiah, was going to come. All the way back at least thousands of years prior to Bethlehem. God's sovereign initiative. So, in mercy... God the Father interrupts our world in the Son of His love, God the Son, who interrogates our souls with His authority and truth so that the Trinity's wrath, it's the Trinity's wrath, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity's wrath against sinners be assuaged, be propitiated, be carried and assumed in his body on the cross by the Son of Man. No other reason. The need to be rescued and to return to the home of the Father. Next slide. 
Paul would write to the church of Thessalonica these words. I write to you so that you may wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Sole purpose. Sole initiative. Well, Pastor, he did so many wonderful things. Yes, he did. Why? Because he's God. But those were not his primary purposes. You see, there's a problem that we have, and that's the reason we went back and we looked at the authority of Jesus Christ, and then we examined the truth that extends from Jesus Christ. We have a problem with authority and truth, but the problem that we have with authority, with God's authority and God's truth, is with God's wrath. That's hard for our finite, sinful minds to grasp. And so we will hear, or perhaps we've even thought, why does the Trinity punish unbelievers with eternity and hell for a finite amount of sin? We only live for a brief period of time. We just studied this back in when we were in 1 Peter, the first part of chapter 4. That's unfair. I don't know if you've ever thought that way before, but I've certainly talked to people that have. That's unfair. It's patently unfair. God would not do that. Shouldn't their duration in hell be commensurate with the amount and severity of their sin? Well, the answer to that question is yes, it should be, and yes, it is. There's no maybe here. Yes, it should be, and yes, it is. And... Uh, 2022 survey that uh, Vance actually sent me this a year or so ago. I've used some of it before. The State of Theology in, in America, uh, Ligonier Ministry. Almost 40% of evangelicals disagreed with the statement, so it's true or false. Do you believe this to be true or false? Hell is a real place with punishment forever. Almost 40% said, I disagree with that. And these are people that claim that the Bible is the true word of God. 40%. Another statement. Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Now this one was even more egregious. Almost 70% disagreed with that. 70%. You see, the first one, the 40%, leads to the second one. What are you saying, preacher? I'm saying once you say that hell is a real place with punishment forever and you, you begin to question that, then obviously when you come to the second statement, even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. Hey, I, no, no. Why? Because we know we're sinners. And we don't want to think 
of the wrath of God. Although Paul has said Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Why is the word salvation in the scripture and why is the word saved in the scripture? To rescue us from the coming wrath. And it is coming. I don't know when. The book of Hebrews says it is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. I don't know when. It's immaterial. Because the word says it, I know it to be true. Because Jesus said it, and I trust Jesus, I know it to be true. So we fail to realize two things when it comes to wrath and comes to understanding of salvation, the rescue. Everyone wants to be rescued, but we don't understand the severity of our sin. We fail to realize or recognize, rather, the nature of the offender. That's you and I. We're the offender. And the second thing is the nature of the offended. That's God. So as if this were a courtroom, and indeed it can be, and it is, the first thing we look at is the nature of the offender. You and I, we're the, we're the ones that offend God. God's not offensive. Humans are guilty. We are born with a sin nature. Even those darling little infants. Meaning that we commit crimes against God all of our lives. That never stops. Never stops. In fact, the longer you live without Jesus, the more rebellious you will become. The more hardened your heart will become. Because we commit these crimes, we deserve punishment. If we commit crimes in this life, we deserve punishment. All people that break the law deserve punishment. Not the disenfranchised, and not the wealthy. All of them. Otherwise, you don't have the rule of law. That's the predicament that you and I are in. So how do we get out of this predicament? Now, the Trinity offers every guilty person. So that's inclusive. All that have ever sinned, pardon in God the Son. Those who receive God's initiative in Jesus are absolved of their guilt and rescued. Not without cost, but absolved of their guilt and rescue. Those who reject the divine initiative, remain guilty. Remain guilty. Resulting in God's sentence to a spiritual punishment that the Bible refers to as hell. Gehenna hell. This is not a message on hell, but just to remind you of that. Next slide. Now here's, the, here's part of what we don't understand. Okay? The divine wrath of God last forever. God does not change. <coughs> and
And because it does, unbelievers remain guilty forever. Their responsibility, your responsibility was to receive the pardon. But they rejected God's authority and his truth. They snubbed the divine initiative. In the passing of time, God's the author of time. The passing of the God-authored time does not absolve them of their guilt. They're still guilty. And it matters not how long, because there's no time in eternity. No time in eternity. Well, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we no, no time. We're not going to be counting. Not going to be any new years in heaven. After serving a thousand years of their sentence, they're still guilty. Well, they rejected the pardon. There's no purgatory. We talked about that in First Peter. There's no limbo is the word that's used. So that's the nature of the offender. And so the nature of the offender is pertinent to their punishment, who we are. But the nature of the person being offended is also pertinent. The Trinity is, in, is offended in human acts of sin in a lifetime of rebellion. This points to the cross. The offense, my offense against God, your offense against God points to this. Because we spurn his authority and truth and we fail to comprehend God's immense goodness, his holiness, his attributes, So we may teach our children, you know, God's the greatest being in the universe, but it's much more than that. We can't define God by greatness because he is, <laughs> he is the epitome of what the word greatness means. The Muslims say, God is great. Well, God's greater than that. And we say, God is great. God's greater than that. There is no plateau. There is no pinnacle to God's greatness. God never can climb too high. Never. Now, we think that, don't we? Well, I'm now the president of the organization. I'm CEO of the organization. I'm the president of the United States. That's about as high as you can get. Not with God. Yes, he's the greatest being in the universe, but he transcends 
outside of the universe. Just how small are we? That's how small we are. Paul preaching to on the Areopagus in Athens in Acts 17 says, For in him we live and move and have our being. Do you know what that means? Without him, we would not exist. We exist, even unbelievers exist, at the pleasure of the triune God. And when our time on this earth is complete, no medicine, no procedure is going to keep us on this earth. Without him, we would not exist. It's a figment of our imagination to think that we can be our own idols. And that's what's in us. Our inability to understand God's greatness is due to sin. The unfathomable altitude, if you, want, if you please, of the greatness of God. We, we don't know. We, we, we cannot. In fact, in, I'm not so sure in heaven we will understand. Perhaps we will. I hope so. But if we don't, it will still be heaven. It's due to sin. And sin impedes our ability to comprehend the reasoning behind the eternality of hell. That's why people say, well, it's unfair because they have been impeded by the noetic, the mental impact of sin. That's true for me, it's true for you, it's true for all that are listening, it's true for every human being ever. It's even true for angels. Put simply, offending an eternal being produces an eternal punishment. Now, let's bring this home a little bit. Next slide, if you would. <clears throat> we have a human justice system. And so the nature of the victim or the person that is offended is taken into account. We have laws that are, if you break the laws that are misdemeanors, level one, two, three, whatever that may be. You have felonies. You have capital felonies. And so the more valuable the nature of the one being offended, the more severe the punishment. This does not change. So in our understanding of punishment, it is directly parallel to the person that is offended. And the person offended in our sin is the triune God. 
The severity of the punishment is aligned with God's nature. It's not arbitrary. It's not capricious. In fact, J.I. Packer will say that. We'll read that in just a moment. God is infinitely greater. Now, we don't understand. We use the word infinite a lot or infinity a lot, but we don't understand infinity because we're finite. God is infinitely greater and more valuable than any person. Any. So the nature of punishment will be infinitely greater. Why did it require the initiative, the divine initiative to crucify the Son of God? Because Jesus is more valuable than any other person. And only the sacrifice that was as valuable as God could take the punishment. When we offend an eternal and an infinite being, we incur an infinite debt. Now, Packer said this. He wrote this in his great book, Knowing God, and I would highly recommend it. I read, read it several times. Page 151, he wrote this. God's wrath in the Bible is never the capricious, self-indulgent, irritable, morally ignoble thing that human anger so often is. Well, did you, hear, did you see him? He flew off the handle. God doesn't fly off the handle. <laughs> God doesn't have an handle fly off of. She's so irritable. God doesn't get irritable. He's cool. He's calm. He's collected in all he does. And uh, Packer goes on to say, it is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. We have offended him. Lucifer offended him. Jesus said in this gospel, by the way, I saw Satan fall from heaven. Why? Because he offended the Trinity. Sin does not exist before holy God. D.A. Carson said, in all our sinning, God is invariably the most offended party. So this comes back to that even minor sin. And how do you, how do we classify? Do you, let me ask you, if we took the time and went back to Genesis 3, we've covered this quite a bit, have we not? Is eating of the fruit considered a major sin? If you tell when Stephanie was a child, and that's been less years ago than it was when I was a child, Robbie would make cookies and she would put them on the counter and Stephanie was walking and she had learned at that time that she could move chairs and climb up in the chairs and get the cookies. And we said, Stephanie, you can't get the cookies can't get the cookies. And finally, we took, put them in a cookie jar and put them up in the cabinet. And then we came in one day, or Robbie came in one day, Stephanie had climbed up on the counter, was reaching up for the cookie jar. 
What are you doing, Stephanie? Who replied, I'm getting a cookie for you, Mommy. Now, you laugh because we've all been there, have we not? It's akin to getting a cookie. No, it's not. It's not. It absolutely is not. It is rejecting the authority and the truth of Almighty God. In all our sinning, God is invariably the most offended party. That is why we must have his forgiveness. And thankfully, he does this. Or we have nothing. Once sin originated in Lucifer's mind, we don't know how. It's not necessary to know how. Beyond our comprehension, it is the mystery within a mystery. You're never going to know it in this mortal life. I'm not certain we're going to know it when we get to heaven. It's unimportant. The fact is, it did take place. You're going into a rabbit hole when you start doing this philosophical discussion of what took place eons of eternity. No. One sin originated in Lucifer's mind. It persists from that point onward. It infected you and I. It still infects you and I, created in God's image. And the desecration of God's image required the consecration of himself on Calvary to satisfy his wrath. We desecrate the image Jesus consecrated the image. What a Savior. What salvation we have in Jesus Christ. This is not God forgive me of my sins and save me, and yes it is, but that's not all there is to it. It is the desecration of the image of God that is consecrated in Jesus Christ as he was crucified. That's the divine initiative. That's Christmas. That's Good Friday. That's Easter. Jesus said to him, today, this day, Salvation has come to this house because Zacchaeus, a rich man, is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your Son. We thank you for Jesus. How incredibly ignorant we are of the beauty of being born again. Forgive us.
In like manner as Jesus told Nicodemus, are you not the ruler of Israel and you don't know these things? Our ignorance, Father, is always no excuse. We are responsible to you for our rescue. You have sealed it in the work of the cross in Jesus Christ. Reveal to us this morning power of the gospel unto salvation. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. <clears throat> We're going to sing a closing hymn this morning. And if the Lord has spoken to you or is speaking to you, then that's by his authority and his truth. Now, it now becomes your responsibility to act on that authority and truth. In him, we live and move and have our being. And so, as we sing this morning, if you're not certain that Jesus is your Savior, then we know that heaven's not your home. It's his heaven. He invites you to respond to him by recognizing that you are a sinner, and a far greater sinner than you will ever imagine, but Jesus is a greater Savior. And so as we sing, if you're not certain, you need to make certain today, and you can make your way out of the pew, and we'll be glad to take you to uh, a private prayer room and with an open Bible lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that is your responsibility. And so we encourage you to do that this morning. As a child of God, perhaps the Lord is leading you into the fellowship of this church. Perhaps the Lord is leading you to follow him in believer's baptism. That's part of his authority, part of his truth. Go, therefore, teach and baptize. And we're, at, we're, we're disciples when we follow his authority and his truth. Perhaps you need to unite with the church in statement of uh, faith or transfer of letter. That's... Uh, your responsibility. So we encourage you to do that this morning. As a child of God, when we reflect back on Christmas, wonderful time. As we reflect back on that, and we look forward now, of course, to Easter. I think Easter is, uh, I think it's the latter part of March this year. I think it's earlier this year. Be certain that you remember that the divine initiative was to seek and save the lost. The healing was a byproduct of the Messiah. All of these things pointed to who Jesus was, the Son of Man that came to seek and save the lost. What number, Brother Vance? 277. 277. If the Lord's spoken to you.